Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to Jess from Checkout.com and we're going to talk about their crypto strategy. How is that related to payments? How is that related to fiat? Can you actually use crypto in a traditional e-commerce? What's going on with crypto itself or the markets? Jess just came from the Merge Fintech event, which took place in London, and I'm curious to hear more about what the temperature was about participants when they were talking about potential crypto winter or not. Welcome, Jess. How are you today? Thank you, Rudy. I'm really good. I'm really good. Excited to to be here and chatting with you today and feeling energized, actually, by the merge event. In terms of this kind of crypto winter, I think that people are actually using this time very wisely to focus on building, eliminating tech debt and taking that time to make sure that they're set up as a business. So I'm feeling very optimistic. That sounds great, which reminds me of a German saying that there is no such thing as a bad weather, there is only bad clothing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so what's your background? How did you get to do what you do today and why joining a Checkout.com? So I have a kind of bit of a mixture of background. I have been pretty opportunistic with things I've done in my career. So I started life actually as an investment banker. I worked in private equity for a while, but I've always been interested in economics. And I wrote a paper in my undergrad program about the history of monetary systems. And so when I came across crypto back in 2014, I was instantly very interested in it. And by the end of 2015, I'd left my kind of finance career behind so that I could focus on crypto and did a number of different things from trying to start a very early NFT company, some social impact work, a bit of investment. And then I joined Checkout in 2020. My first role there was actually as chief of staff to the CEO, which was an amazing role that I did for two years, who is the founder is incredible. And it was a real privilege to work with him. And then I moved, I was missing crypto, if I'm honest. And earlier this year in April, I moved across to join our crypto team. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So I did see that you studied art, right? So I guess this was a preparation for the NFT foray as well, right? Yeah, exactly. I've always been super interested in art. I love art. Like I try and fill my house with art and I have a lot of friends who are artists. And I think that artists are often actually kind of on the cutting edge of exploring new technologies. And that goes back to like Leonardo da Vinci, who was a kind of technologist and an artist. And the same is true in crypto. There were a lot of artists experimenting as early as 2014-15 with things like colored coins on the Bitcoin network, NFTs before we were even calling them NFTs. And for me, incredibly interesting and, and cool to be able to see the intersection of these two worlds as they were emerging back in 2016-17. Oh, brilliant. So what is the problem that you're solving at Checkout.com more broadly? And then more specifically, what's your role as a crypto strategist there? 
So Checkout.com is a global payments company. I was founded in 2012 and we provide payment solutions to many of the world's kind of leading businesses, everybody from the likes of Netflix, Shein, Curve, all the way through to much more traditional e-commerce businesses as well. And we, I think probably 16, 1700 people, we have 20 something offices around the world and have grown a lot over the last little while. In the crypto space specifically, we have been providing those same capabilities to crypto exchanges since 2018. And what that means is that just if you're a consumer and you go onto an e-commerce website and you try and buy a pair of shoes with your credit card or your debit card, it's the same technology. If you go onto a crypto exchange and you want to buy some Bitcoin with your debit card, we can help facilitate those transactions. And then we also have a range of sort of other products like card payouts, bank payouts, fraud solutions that sort of layer onto this to create like holistic payment solutions for those companies. And in the crypto space, We've started, as I said, back in 2018, but have really grown now to, I think, be one of the kind of leading providers for the industry. We process for 12 of the top 15 exchanges, a load of platforms, many of the on and off ramps within the industry. And... Um, and we're really lucky and we love it. And we have great merchants and we really enjoy building products alongside them. And so we've started actually this year to build some more crypto native solutions. The first of those was a stablecoin settlement offering that we can touch more on a bit later. And this year, we've really been building out our product and engineering teams to help us build more crypto specific solutions. Oh, brilliant. Now let's go back to basics from a consumer point of view, right? So do you think we will be paying with cryptocurrencies more widely at some point or the cryptocurrencies will be just like a digital gold? There are some e-commerce websites where you can pay with Bitcoin if you want. There are also Bitcoin ATMs or other cryptocurrencies are also accepted. But does this really work in the day-to-day e-commerce or commerce? Yeah, so look, I think that one of the reasons that companies like us exist is to facilitate choice for consumers. Because when you go onto a website and you want to buy something, you can want to be able to use your preferred payment method, right? Whether that's a credit card or a debit card or a local alternative payment me method. And I think that crypto will sit alongside that. There will definitely be people who prefer to use cryptocurrency than other payment methods. Um, and that may be for a variety of reasons. It may be because they invested early in crypto and they have a lot of it and they want to spend it. It may actually be to reduce the cost. Card payments, particularly at high transaction value, can be expensive. And so consumers may choose to use crypto for cost reasons. It may be more simple because it's integrated into a Web3 experience. There's a whole re bunch of reasons that we see this. And at Checkout, we regularly survey a lot of consumers. I actually just saw, saw the latest set of data this morning. And what we hear from the kind of consumer base is that there really is appetite for people to be able to pay with cryptocurrencies. All right, understood. And I think consumer choice is something that people should think about, right? Sometimes if some business has been around for more than 100 years, they think that the consumers are here to serve them, not the other way around. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about stable coins, right? Because one of the practical issues with paying with crypto is that you don't know what the exchange rate would be to fiat tomorrow or in one hour, right? So how would stable coins fit into the traditional economy 
would they fit into better than early versions of cryptocurrencies? What's your view on that? So I'm really interested and optimistic about how the stablecoin landscape is evolving. There's obviously still some regulatory movement, but I think that stablecoins have a really important role to play in the world of payments. When you look at why we had stablecoins in the first place, um, a lot of those very early use cases was the ability for people to move in and out of cryptocurrency without going that whole way and withdrawing funds back into fiat just because of the kind of time that it takes to move in and out. And so we emerged this kind of concept of a stablecoin that's value is pegged to mostly a kind of fiat currency. So US dollars, euros, pounds, and so on. Um, and I think in the payments context, that's exactly as you alluded to, like this stability of currency, the ability to fix exchange rates between dollars and then stablecoin dollar denominated digital assets is what gives consumers a lot of comfort. It means that there's less risk for merchants if they want to actually hold the cryptocurrency themselves directly, they're not then exposed to that volatility. But you then you still get a lot of the advantages of having a digital asset, you can it can be programmable, you can put it into smart contracts, you can move it very easily, you get the transparency benefits, if that's what you're looking for from having an asset on a blockchain. And so it's the this really very useful tool for us as we start thinking about how to better serve our merchants. And as I said, we launched this first product in June of this year, and we've seen a lot of demand specifically from the crypto industry, just because they're used to, to dealing with stable coins, and they prefer to do that than use fiat. And you are also looking at CBDCs, right? So central bank digital currencies, obviously, many central banks are looking into it, but it's taking some time, right? So Sometimes commentators say just to have an electronic version of what we already have, which, by the way, is mostly electronic anyway, is not going to bring any value. So there has to be something more. And on top of it, let's also get ready for an exchange between these currencies in a way people call it interoperability issues, right? So how do you see the current status quo of CDBCs and, and what would that bring to the end consumer if they were adopted more widely? Yeah, so I am privileged to sit on the Bank of England Engagement Forum for CBDCs. And that's a group of industry, academics, various people who come together to really consider the implementation of a CBDC within the UK. As you mentioned, there's various iterations of CBDC emerging is in pilot form in many countries around the world. And the way that different countries are taking or approaching the design of that is very different for kind of specific use cases. I actually think that some of the first CBDCs that we'll start to see at scale won't even touch retail. There'll be wholesale CBDCs that behave in the same way that central bank money does today, i.e. it's built in the relationship between the central banks and the commercial banks rather than between commercial banks and consumers. And so I think for most retail customers, they won't initially be using CBDCs on a kind of day-to-day -day basis. That's not the same everywhere. In Nigeria, for example, what they've launched is a retail CBDC and there's some 
250 million wallets already created to hold that as a currency. And so we'll start to see these different these different forms of CBDC, I think, over the next little while. One of the reasons, of course, that these things take a long time to do is because it has a real impact on the levers that these institutions have from a policy perspective, specifically monetary policy. And so I think it's actually very good that, that many of these central banks are taking the time to consider this in a really full way. And I do think that when we end up with some form of kind of retail CBDC or retail equivalent of a commercial bank money that we see in existence today, um, the the benefits are going to be very similar to some of the benefits that we see with stable coins, right? The ability to have programmable money, the ability to move it incredibly efficiently. And whilst you're right, in the UK today, a lot of payments and money movement is very digital, it still runs on very old rails. And in many countries around the world, um, it's not as efficient as it is in the UK. And so I think CBDCs in some places will have more of an impact on consumers than others. I see. So building on what you just said about wholesale or retail use cases for digital currencies, when we turn over to you, who are your key clients? Are you a B2B business primarily? And who are your key clients? How do you work with them? Yes. So we are a B2B company. We primarily work with with enterprises, so not with small and medium-sized businesses. And the way that we work with them is we're effectively a technology solution that helps get money from their consumers into their own bank account. When you as a consumer go onto a website and you pay with your debit card, maybe, what you don't see is this whole kind of train of messaging, digital messaging that's going on behind. And then, of course, the movement of real funds from your bank account via the card schemes, if it's Visa or MasterCard or another scheme, um, through the acquiring company, which is what checkout is, and then ultimately getting those funds into the merchant. And so what we do is take care of that end-to-end process to help businesses basically accept money, which is a really crucial part of what they do. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes I feel like, look, love this product. I just came to you directly. You didn't have to persuade me. Here's the money on the table and you cannot process this. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And I think that we've seen this real trend over the last few years where payments has shifted from being just like some back office functionality that companies have to have so that they can accept money to actually being a very strategic component of how people build consumer experiences. Because people recognize that um, if you give your customers a bad experience, they're not going to come back or they may not even complete a transaction. We've all been there, I think. We've gone online to buy something. The card gets declined for no apparent reason. you got to go and find another card. Or These experiences are painful as a consumer. And if you're in a competitive landscape, you want to be delivering the most seamless experience possible for your consumers. And you want to be optimizing the amount of revenue that that you capture. A failed transaction or an abandoned basket on an e-commerce store ultimately is money that you're not making as a business. Right. So talking about competitive landscape, why are your solutions better than your competitors? There are, we don't have a panel here, so we're not going to mention that, but it's your opportunity to brag, of course. And the point is, that, or what I'd like to know is some of them started with a B2C model, right? And then they turn into enterprise and etc. You are the enterprise. Why your solutions are, are better in your view than the others? 
So I think there's a couple of things that Checkout has done to help build what I think is a great solution for the market. Number one is that we're, we own the full stack of the technology. We don't, we're not a kind of platform that's been patched together from other businesses. We don't use external kind of payment processing companies. Like we build all of the technology ourselves. That means that we have a lot of clarity over the data that takes place behind each and every one of these transactions. It means we can help minimize fraud, maximize acceptance rates, which is the chance of a transaction successfully being completed to help our customers to maximize their revenue. Specifically, I think one of the other things that we have been doing at checkout and really pride ourselves on is that sort of like white glove experience for our merchants. When our merchants have an issue with the technology, which we hope that they don't very often, but when they don't have to email support at checkout.com, they've got a dedicated customer success manager who works with them that they can call, they can WhatsApp, they can WeChat at any time. And I think that sort of like very close partnership with our merchants, supporting them on a day-to-day basis to get the most from their payments and even building and developing new features in response to their needs, I think also really just makes us makes us stand out as a company. And then finally, we are very global. We're regulated in many markets markets around the world, which means that we can provide domestic processing, which is another contributing factor to optimizing your acceptance. And that means that we can help our merchants as they grow globally to build their payments business wherever they are in the world. So they don't have to find another provider when they move into a new geography. We can just switch that on for them and give them a very seamless experience to support their growth. I see. All understood. Thank you so much. Now, let's change tack a little bit and look at the markets, right? So how do you see crypto markets this year? Because we have seen such a correlation with the traditional markets. And why has that happened? This is a alternative asset class, which runs on different principles. But we've seen a huge declines in the public markets, but also in crypto. What's your take on this? Yeah, so there's, there was a very interesting paper published that kind of analyzes the correlation of crypto performance with with equity market performance. And what the result says is that when, when equity markets are going up and to the right, crypto is very decorrelated and behaves very differently. But when, when markets are going down, crypto, the correlation increases. So crypto moves more in line with equity markets. And I think that this is a very interesting observation this year. We're seeing it for the first time in, in such a powerful way due to the kind of global economic um, situation, particularly here in the UK and in Europe with the energy crises. And I think that's because people gen- generally are just wondering how to get the best from their funds and from their money. The higher interest rate environment creates a different competitive landscape if you're picking where you want to put your money. And people, I think, are just evaluating risk a little differently than they did even a year or 18 months ago. I think with within the crypto space, we've seen these sort of cycle very regularly now for the last 
sort of 10, 10, 15 years. And I think we'll continue to see that. I actually think it's not necessarily a bad thing for the industry as a whole, because what tends to happen during these cooler crypto winter is that people focus on building really great businesses. They take the time to really make sure that what they're building, the unit economics work, the, they're not just taking advantage of hype cycles, but they're building in a very sustainable way. And what happens as a result is every time the kind of the warm summer comes back, we see bigger and better businesses than we did last time. I see. Sounds good. Now, how would you judge the market temperature after you attended the merge conference? Or do you think that we are entering a crypto winter, building on what you just said, or it's only a little blip and a cold snap? Yeah, look, I think one of the interesting things that I've noticed in this kind of crypto winter is that many of the companies are still really very focused on building. In the last cycle, we saw this effect where particularly traditional companies who were beginning to explore Web3 technology, the winter came and they were like, oh, let's shelve that project. We don't want to do that anymore. We have less conviction in crypto. Whereas now what's happening is that they're saying, we know that it's going to come back. We have full confidence in this. We really understand the benefits of this from a technological perspective. And so we're actually investing now to make sure that we can deliver for the future. And so that's one of the reasons I'm so optimistic at the moment. And despite the fact that the price of cryptocurrencies is down, there are some really great conversations and projects and companies who are focusing on building right now. And look, I just think it's a It's a really positive sign for the momentum of the industry as a whole. And that was really reflected in the atmosphere at Merge this week. The conversations really sophisticated, people really understanding and or trying to understand the true benefits of the technology and actually how to implement it. It's no longer just conceptual. It's what's the reality of this? How do I talk to my CFOs about it? How do I think about this from a tax perspective, from an accounting perspective, all these things that are like not particularly sexy, but are incredibly important for the actual implementation. Wonderful. So that's great to hear. So before we go, I just have two easy questions for you. First of all, what, you know, what is your recommended source when it comes to crypto news or crypto information? Sometimes people say, you cannot read a book on this because by the time it gets published, everything is different. So maybe there are blogs or newsletters that uh, you could recommend or or there is a book which is timeless in any case and helpful. Yeah, so I, I'm actually like a big fan of, of Twitter, crypto Twitter. There's some great people that I follow on there. I think Blockworks is amazing for kind of real-time news. They're almost always ahead of the game. Other great people include Ari Redboard, who writes a lot about regulation and policy. Lynn Alden for macroeconomics. Ryan Selkis, I think, for more technical things. And so there's a handful of these great Twitter accounts that I follow very actively. There's obviously a huge wealth of of blog posts and things out there as well. I think that the Binance Academy is great to start actually learning about different kinds of cryptocurrencies. There are obviously the white papers themselves. Everybody in crypto should have at least read the Bitcoin white paper. The Ethereum Foundation website, I find a great resource. So there's all these different pockets of where you can get different content. And then of course, podcasts. I love listening to a podcast. 
Um, I cycle most places in London. And so occasionally I'll just pop on a podcast, often by Laura Shin, who I think is an amazing podcaster, to accompany my journey and help make sure that I stay up to date. Wonderful. Sounds great. So I'll put the, some of those names or as many as I can in the show notes, of course. And the last question is very easy. What's the best way to reach out and what kind of people would you like to hear from most? So I love talking to anybody who is building in this space. Obviously, people who want support from a payments perspective should get in touch. But I'm I'm so fascinated by what's happening that I'm always keen to, to meet people, particularly founders, particularly founders from underrepresented backgrounds as well. So anybody can reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at Jess Holgrave, also on LinkedIn. Our website is checkout.com, where you can find out more about us as a company, but definitely don't hesitate to get in touch great stuff so good luck to you jess and the checkout.com thanks very much rudy all right thank you for listening to voice of fintech podcast if you haven't already check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast you can also subscribe to voice of fintech on apple Podcasts, spotify google or any other podcast app that you like if you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.